Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Isaiah invites us to look at a vast landscape. A landscape that was once covered with huge, immense, powerful trees. Yet everywhere you look, the trees have been cut down. Everywhere you look, are just a bunch of stumps. You see, Isaiah will frequently use the image of powerful and great nations and imagine them as trees. The great kings of the earth are like powerful trees. They are magnificent. They stand above the rest. But in their arrogance, in building themselves up above the world and above others, God is going to show up and cut them all down. And as we stand in this field, surveying all of this wreckage, Isaiah draws our attention to one stump. The stump of Jesse, which is David's line, right? David's dad, King David, the King David, his dad's name was Jesse. This is the king of Israel, chopped down so that its lineage, David's line, is just a stump on the ground. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense. God made a covenant with David, an official promise from God, and God, we trust, does not break his promises. He promised that David, one of his descendants, right, his lineage from that time on, would always sit on the throne. He would never cease to have an heir as a king in Israel. And on top of that, God makes this eternal covenant. It's a crazy promise that God makes. Because he says, even if David or his descendants sinned, God would punish them, but he would never take his love away from him or remove the kingship like he did with Saul, who was prior to David. The fact that in the midst of this massive field of stumps, that one is the line of David, is a shock to us as the readers and as the listeners. And it should make us wonder, what in the world happened? How is it that King David's line has been chopped down when Yahweh made a promise he would always have a king on the throne. If we go backwards in time to the time of Moses, to the book of Deuteronomy, in the midst of Moses' speech to the people as they prepare to enter the land, Moses gives all sorts of directions to the people. But in chapter 17, he gives specific directions for when they request to have a king because he seems to know that they're going to do that. Moses says, when you choose to set up a king, you shouldn't acquire a whole bunch of horses. You shouldn't go back to Egypt and acquire a bunch of their horses. I was listening to somebody else teach about this passage recently, and they translated it this way. You shouldn't go back to Egypt and get a bunch of their horses, which are Egyptian tanks, right? You shouldn't go back and get all those Egyptian tanks, because that's what horses were, in a way, in those days. Horses pulled chariots, which were a huge advantage in military, in conquering other nations, right? You're above most of the fighting, you're faster, you can take out more people. It's a huge advantage. And so Moses tells future kings, don't go after acquiring a bunch of those newfangled military technologies of horses and their chariots, right? He then goes on to tell the people, the king also should not acquire a bunch of wives, which kings might do, because marrying the princesses of other nations was a way of forming alliances. 
and treaties between nations. And the kings shouldn't go after these other nations because their gods are fickle and harmful and violent and oppressive. And to join up with them is going to affect the king and its nation as well. Moses goes on to say the king also, not only horses and wives, but should not acquire massive amounts of silver and gold. When kings are takers, when their desire is to acquire and to gain more power and to gain more wealth, even if in the midst of their power and wealth their economy is booming and they have a land of plenty, which Egypt was in the days of Moses, Nevertheless, when kings are takers, it becomes a land of plenty at times that devours the labor force that made it so. So according to Moses, the king should not be driven by military or economic prowess, should not be seeking safety and success through these political alliances with other nations and their gods. What they should be doing is seeking to put an end to harm, to seeking to stop violence and destruction and to promote wholeness and safety But the luring temptation is that military prowess, economic success, and political alliances will accomplish that, right? Weapons, financial success, this power jostling to get above others is often done in a way that's thought to protect and care for the people. But Moses thinks otherwise. Moses believes that this sort of activity from a king is only going to bring about death. He is convinced that going after all of these things is just going to make more violence and create more harm and will bring more destruction for the people. So we have Moses' words of what a king should or maybe should not be, if you will. And then we start to look at David. We've got this commitment from God, this eternal covenant to David and his family line. And we look at these things in light of Moses' ideals for a king and things don't look so good. David is a king after God's own heart. It's why God chose David. And yet David becomes a taker. He acquires the wife of another person, using his power without consent, and using his power also to murder and to cover up. David's son Solomon, the next one on the throne, Solomon is often lifted up even today as this incredible example of success. I mean, look how wealthy and powerful the guy is, for crying out loud. He receives in estimates in our dollars today billions of dollars every year worth of gold. Some estimate like $40 billion of gold in tribute annually, every year. And yet Moses' words should be ringing in our ears. The king should not acquire massive amounts of gold and massive amounts of silver. Solomon ends up with hundreds of wives and thousands of concubines. In Moses' words, he should not be acquiring many wives. Solomon strikes up an allegiance with Egypt, marries the king of Egypt's daughter, and starts modeling and acting like Pharaoh. Solomon ends up enslaving a whole bunch of people in Israel. Solomon is hailed as a great king who ruled in a time of peace, but peace for whom? And peace at the expense of whom? King after king after king after king in David's line keeps seeking military prowess, safety through acquisitiveness, and they keep aligning themselves with the other kings, their nations, and their fickle and violent gods. All of them keep jostling for prestige in the known world. And where does it lead? 
more and more violence. Violence between the nations, violence in the midst of Israel itself. People keep getting stepped on again and again. And these kings put into practice, Isaiah says in the previous chapter, they codify their unjust actions and turn them into laws. So what does God do about this horrible situation? He's patient for centuries. For centuries, he keeps sending prophet after prophet, trying to turn this situation around, but they just keep heading down the same path. And finally, God gets to the point where it's, if violence is what they want, right? If they want to keep acquiring, if they want to keep forming these alliances, I will give you the end result of what it is you want. If they don't want the life and protection that Yahweh provides, he'll give them what they keep clamoring for. And so Yahweh grabs his axe and chops down the lineage of David. Babylon shows up as God's instrument, his axe, and they wipe out Jerusalem. They destroy the throne of David, and they haul David's descendants away into captivity. So what of God's covenant fidelity, right? This is a huge problem. He promised that David would never cease to have a king on the throne, but the throne is gone. And Israel is demolished and in exile. And yet, Isaiah invites us to imagine. To imagine that out of this stump that has been chopped down, a branch is starting to grow. And it's not growing up of its own accord. This is not a people or a king doing the impossible thing that we sometimes say is possible today of, you know, picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's not really possible at all. That's not what's going on here. It's not growing of its own accord. It's not a people persevering in the midst of adversity and getting some tough skin and and figuring things out on their own. This is Yahweh making life where there was none. This is Yahweh making hope appear where the situation was literally entirely cut off. This is God showing his shocking commitment to his promise that he swore to David, even though the kings keep contributing to violence and injustice. God is going to bring, make hope spring forth from this stump. Fast forward a whole bunch of years and we end up in the New Testament time. And we see, as we heard in our reading today, John the baptizer announcing the arrival of a new king. One that's going to bring about judgment in the world. John says, wrath is coming. And who told you, as he talks to the religious leaders, who told you to flee from this coming wrath? The axe is already at the root of the tree. He's going to bring fire. He's going to gather wheat and burn up all that extra chaff. He's going to exercise authority. A king is going to straighten everything out. So repent. Get ready, John says. Sounds intense, right? Sounds like the king that John is expecting and preparing the people for is going to be powerful and unafraid to bash some heads together, if you will. Unafraid to use violence to get the job done. But Jesus is something unexpected. I'm not saying that John was flat out wrong or anything like that, but John confesses, but Jesus confuses John. John is a faithful forerunner. He faithfully announces the coming of Jesus, but Jesus shows up and confuses John. You see, John will later on end up in prison for doing what is right and faithful. 
And from prison, they'll send out messengers to go find Jesus to ask him, are you actually the one? Right? I'm in prison. I was announcing wrath. I was announcing judgment and that you're going to straighten everything out. And I don't see any of that happening. But Jesus comforts John. He says, the blind are receiving their sight. The lame are walking. The dead are being raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor basically saying, I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the king from David's line. But he is like a king that God desired back in the days of Moses when he spoke through Moses. Jesus doesn't acquire vast amounts of silver and gold like Solomon. He doesn't seek military might and prowess like many kings have done prior. He does not seek to jostle for prestige amongst the powerful of the day. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't resort to violence. Jesus isn't going around busting skulls and getting them before they get him. He's not going around gathering up all the unjust and bringing them off to prison and clearing out the chaff in the religious and the political scene of his day. Jesus did not, excuse me, John did not expect a king to act and speak like Jesus. And yet Jesus does slay the wicked. As we hear in Isaiah's account, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and he will slay the wicked with his words. He goes around and he speaks truth to power. He keeps condemning the cruelty and the injustice of those who are oppressing others. He speaks out, he cares for, and he welcomes those who are being taken advantage of in that political and religious scene. He provides for and speaks up on the behalf of widows. He restores lepers. He eats and welcomes sinners and the unclean. He is bringing peace and harmony into the world. And he slays the wicked by forgiving sin. As he hangs on a cross repeatedly again and again, the verbs tell us that he says over and over, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He doesn't resort to violence. He doesn't go about political pandering, but suffers unjustly underneath all of it. He suffers violence because he refuses to contribute to it. He suffers on a cross because he keeps speaking out against the present way things are and how damaging it is. Because of his commitment to restoring peace, because of his willingness to serve, he is crucified. Rather than use his power and authority to lord it over others, he offers himself. And this is our king. God raised him from the dead. Why? So that he can continue to carry out this good work. God thought it was a great thing that Jesus was doing. And so he brings him back to life so that that work can continue in the world by his spirit even today. Isaiah, you see, has us imagine that under this new king, this branch that's coming out of a stump, This new king is showing up to end violence and harm. Bring it entirely to an end. He invites us to watch all these animals and young children get together. Lions, lambs, leopards, goats, toddlers, snakes, cows, bears. They're all hanging out together and not a single one of them is getting hurt. There's zero bloodshed. 
There's no injustice. There's no oppression. They're all at peace. They're all at harmony with one another. And this, we trust, is what Jesus is bringing about in the world. Because he truly is a king after God's own heart. We as the people of God today in Christ, we live under the dominion of this Lord. We are under the government of Jesus, if you will, citizens of the kingdom of God. A kingdom which is not bound by any nation, race, or language. No matter who you are in the world, if you trust and call upon Jesus as Lord, you are under his government. It's not synonymous with our country or any other country for that matter. But as his citizens, we are called to exemplify and enact our lives according to the values and ideals of God's kingdom. A kingdom which is not violent. A kingdom which does not seek to solidify and maintain power through things like political alliances. It's a kingdom that we are a part of in Jesus that does not go about seeking economic advantage in order to dominate the market or dominate local communities, for that matter, even, by acquiring more and more. That's how the world functions. That's how various nations and even the one that we live in frequently functions. But it is not to be our values. They are not to be our ideals. Instead, Christ, our Lord, has shown us the way. He has ushered in his reign of peace, which we trust will find its fulfillment when he does return. He has brought about peace and restoration through his death and resurrection, a peace that we share together even today. And he has called us to live as citizens. Citizens who call a crucified one our Lord. Citizens who call the one after God's own heart our king, who offers himself and continues to bring about that life in the world today. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus as we live under his lordship. Amen.